Book Two, Chapter Twenty Four of Letters of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Bulkley of BigBible.org. Egypt of the Magicians. The Riddle of Empire. From Letters of Travel by Rudyard Kipling. At Halfa, one feels the first breath of a frontier. Here, the Egyptian government retires into the background, and even the Cook steamer does not draw up in the exact centre of the postcard. At the telegraph office, too, there are traces, diluted but quite recognisable, of military administration. Nor does the town, in any way or place whatever, smell, which is proof that it is not looked after on popular lines. There is nothing to see in it any more than there is in Hulk C-60, late of Her Majesty's troopship Himalaya, now a coal-hulk in the Hamoise at Plymouth. A river-front, a narrow terraced river-walk of semi-oriental houses, barracks, a mosque, and half a dozen streets at right angles, the desert racing up to the end of each, make all the town. A mile or so upstream, under palm-trees, are bungalows of what must have been cantonments some machinery repair shops and odds and ends of railway track. It's all as paltry a collection of whitewashed houses, pitiful gardens, dead walls and trodden waste spaces as one would wish to find anywhere, and every bit of it quivers with the remembered life of armies and river fleets, as the finger bowl rings when the rubbing finger is lifted. Most unlikely men have done time there. Stores by the thousand ton have been rolled and pushed and hauled up the banks by tens of thousands of scattered hands. Hospitals have pitched themselves there, expanded enormously, shriveled up and drifted away with the drifting regiments. Railway sidings by the mile have been laid down and ripped up again as need changed, and utterly wiped out by the sands. Halfa has been the railhead, army headquarters and hub of the universe, the one place where a man could make sure of buying tobacco and sardines and could hope for letters for himself and medical attendance for his friend. Now she is a little shrunken shell of a town, without a proper hotel, where tourists hurry up from the river to buy complete sets of Sudan stamps at the post office. I went for a purposeless walk from one end of the place to the other, and found a crowd of native boys playing football on what might have been a parade ground in the, of the old days. And what school is that? I asked in English of a small eager youth. Madrisha, said he most intelligently, which being translated means just school. Yes, but what school? Yes, Madrisha, school, sir. And he tagged after to see what else the imbecile wanted. A line of railway track that must have bed big workshops in its time led me between big-roomed houses and offices labelled departmentally, with here and there a clerk at work. I was directed and redirected by polite Egyptian officials. I wished to get at a white officer, if possible, but there wasn't one about. I was turned out of a garden which belonged to an authority, hung round the gate of a bungalow with an old established compound and two white men sitting in chairs on a veranda, wandered down towards the river, under the palm trees, where the last red light came through lost myself among rusty boilers and bulks of timber, 
and at last loafed back in the twilight escorted by the small boy and an entire brigade of ghosts not one of whom i had ever met before but all of whom i knew most intimately they said it was the evenings that used to depress them most too so all came back after dinner and bore me company while i went to meet a friend arriving by the night train from khartoum she was an hour late and we spent it the ghosts and i in a brick-walled tin-roofed shed warm with the day's heat a crowd of natives laughing and talking somewhere behind in the darkness we knew each other so well by that time that we'd finished discussing every conceivable topic of conversation the whereabouts of the mahdi's head for instance work reward despair acknowledgment flat failure all the real motives that had driven us to do anything and all our other longings so we sat still and let the stars move as men must do when they meet this kind of train presently i asked what's the name of the next station out from here station number one said a ghost and the next station number two and so on to eight i think and wasn't it worth while to name even one of these stations for some man living or dead who had something to do with making the line well they didn't anyhow said another ghost i suppose they didn't think it worth while why what do you think i think i replied it is the sort of snobbery that nations go to hades for her headlights showed at last an immense distance off the economic electrics were turned up the ghosts vanished the dragomans of the various steamers flowed forward in beautiful garments to meet their passengers who had booked passages in the cook boats and the khartoum train decanted a joyous collection of folk all decorated with horns hoofs skins hides knives and assegais which they had been buying at omdurman and when the porters laid hold upon their bustling bundles it was like macneil's zareba without the camels two young men in tarbouche were the only people who had no part in the riot said one of them to the other hello said the other hello they grunted together for a while then one pleasantly oh i'm sorry for that i thought i was going to have you under me for a bit then you'll use the rest house there i suppose so said the other do you happen to know if the roof's on here a woman wailed aloud for her dervish spear which had gone adrift and i shall never know except from the back pages of the sudan almanac what state that rest house there is in the sudan administration by the little i heard is a queer service it extends itself in silence from the edges of abyssinia to the swamps of the equator at an average pressure of one white man to several thousand square miles it legislates according to the custom of the tribe where possible and on the common sense of the moment when there is no precedent it is recruited almost wholly from the army armed chiefly with binoculars and enjoys a death rate a little lower than its own reputation it is said to be the only service in which a man taking his leave is explicitly recommended to get out of the country and rest himself that he may return the more fit for his job a high standard of intelligence is required and lapses are not overlooked for instance one man on leave in london took the wrong train from boulogne and instead of going to paris which of course he had intended he found himself at a station called kilisi or adrianople west where he stayed for some weeks it was a mistake that might have happened to anyone on a dark night 
after a stormy passage but the authorities would not believe it and when I left Egypt were busily engaged in boiling him in hot oil they are grossly respectable in the Sudan now long and long ago even before the Philippines were taken a friend of mine was reprimanded by a British member of Parliament for the sin of blood guiltiness because he was by trade a soldier next for murder because he had fought in great battles and lastly and most important because he and his fellow braves had saddled the British taxpayer with the expense of the Sudan my friend explained that all the Sudan had ever cost the British taxpayer was the price of about one dozen regulation Union Jacks one for each province that said the MP triumphantly is all it will ever be worth he went on to justify himself and the Sudan went on also today it has taken its place as one of those accepted miracles which are worked without heat or headlines by men who do the job nearest their hand and seldom fuss about their reputations but less than sixteen years ago the length and breadth of it was one crazy hell of murder torture and lust where every man who had a sword used it till he met a stronger and became a slave it was the men say who remember it a hysteria of blood and fanaticism and precisely as a hysterical woman is called to her senses by a dash of cold water so at the battle of omdurman the land was reduced to sanity by applied death on such a scale as the murderers and the torturers at their most unbridled could scarcely have dreamed in a day and a night all who had power and authority were wiped out and put under till as the old song says no chief remained to ask after any follower they had all charged into paradise the people who were left looked for renewed massacres of the sort they had been accustomed to and when these did not come they said helplessly we have nothing we have nothing will you sell us into slavery among the Egyptians the men who remember the old days of the reconstruction which deserves an epic of its own say that there was nothing left to build on not even wreckage knowledge decency kinship property tide sense of possession had all gone the people were told they were to sit still and obey orders and they stared and fumbled like dazed crowds after an explosion bit by bit however they were fed and watered and marshalled into some sort of order set to tasks they never dreamed to see the end of and almost by physical force pushed and hauled along the ways of mere life they came to understand presently that they might reap what they had sown and that a man even a woman might walk for a day's journey with two goats and a native bedstead and live undespoiled but they had to be taught kindergarten fashion and little by little they realized that the new order was sure and that their ancient oppressors were quite dead they returned not only cultivators craftsmen and artisans but outlandish men of war scarred with old wounds and the generous dimples that the martini henry bullet used to heal fighting men on the lookout for new employ they would hang about first on one leg then on the other proud or uneasily friendly till some white officer circulated nearby and at his fourth or fifth passing brown and white having approved each other by eye the talk so men say would run something like this officer with air of sudden discovery oh you by the hut there what's your business warrior at attention complicated by attempt to salute 
I am so-and-so, son of so-and-so, from such-and-such a place. Officer. I hear, and— Warrior, repeating salute. And a fighting man also. Officer, impersonally to the horizon. But they all say that nowadays. Warrior, very loudly. But there is a man in one of your battalions who can testify to it. He is the grandson of my father's uncle. Officer, confidentially to his boots. Hell is quite full of such grandsons of such father's uncles. And how do I know if Private So-and-so speaks the truth about his family? Makes to go. Warrior, swiftly removing necessary garments. Perhaps, but these don't lie. Look, I got this ten, twelve years ago when I was quite a lad, close to the old border. Yes, Halfa. It was a true Snyder bullet. Feel it. This little one on the leg I got at the big fight that finished it all last year. But I am not lame. Violent leg exercise. Not in the least lame. See, I run, I jump, I kick. Praise be Allah. Officer. Praise be Allah. And then? Warrior. Coquettishly. Then I shoot. I am not common spearman. Laps into English. Yeah, damn good shot. Pumps lever of imaginary martini. Officer, unmoved. I see. And then? Warrior, indignantly. I am come here, after many days marching. Changed a childlike wheedle. Are all the regiments full? At this point the relative, in uniform, generally discovered himself, and if the officer liked the cut of his jib, another old Mahdi's man would be added to the machine that made itself as it rolled along. They dealt with situations in those days by the unclouded light of reason, and a certain high and holy audacity. There is a tale of two sheikhs, shortly after the reconstruction began, one of them Abdullah of the river, prudent and the son of a slave-woman, professed loyalty to the English very early in the day, and used that loyalty as a cloak to lift camels from another sheikh, Farid of the desert, still at war with the English, but a perfect gentleman, which Abdullah was not. Naturally, Farid raided back on Abdullah's kine. Abdullah complained to the authorities, and the border fermented. To Farid in his desert camp, with a clutch of Abdullah's cattle round him, entered alone and unarmed the officer responsible for the peace of those parts. After compliments, for they had had dealings with each other before, "'You've been driving Abdullah's stock again,' said the Englishman. "'I should think I had,' was the hot answer. "'He lifts my camels and scuttles back into your territory, where he knows I can't follow him for the life. And when I try to get my own back, he whines to you. He's a cad, an utter cad. At any rate, he's loyal. If you'd only come in and be loyal too, you'd both be on the same footing.' and then if he stole from you he'd catch it. He'd never dare to steal, except under your protection. Give him what he'd have got in the Mahdi's time, a first-class flogging. You know he deserves it. I'm afraid that isn't allowed. You'll have to let me shift all those bullocks of his back again. And if I don't, then I shall have to ride back and collect all my men and begin war against you. But what prevents my cutting your throat where you sit? For one thing, you aren't Abdullah, and— there, you confess he's a cad. And for another, the government would only send another officer who didn't understand your ways, and then there would be war, and no one would score except Abdullah. He'd steal your camels and get credit for it. So he would, the scoundrel. This is a hard word for honest men. Now, 
you admit Abdullah is a cad listen to me and I'll tell you a few more things about him he was etc etc he is etc etc you're perfectly right Sheikh but don't you see I can't tell him what I think of him so long as he's loyal and you're against us now if you come in I promise you that I'll give Abdullah a telling off yes in your presence that will do you good to listen to now I won't come in but I tell you what I'll do I'll accompany you tomorrow as your guest understand to your camp then you send for Abdullah and if I judge that his fat face has been sufficiently blackened in my presence I'll think about coming in later so it was arranged and they slept out the rest of the night side by side in the morning they gathered up and returned all Abdullah's cattle and in the evening in Farid's presence Abdullah got the tongue lashing of his wicked old life and Farid of the desert laughed and came in and they all lived happy ever afterwards somewhere or other in the nearer provinces the old heady game must be going on still but the Sudan proper has been settled to civilization of the brick bungalow and bougainvillea sort and there is a huge technical college where the young men are trained to become fitters surveyors draftsmen and telegraph employees at fabulous wages in due time they will forget how wearily their fathers had to walk in the Mahdi's time to secure even half a bellyful then as has happened elsewhere they will honestly believe that they themselves originally created and since then have upheld the easy life into which they were bought at so heavy a price then the demand will go up for extension of local government Sudan for the Sudanese and so on till the whole cycle has to be retrodden it is a hard law but an old one Rome died learning it as our Western civilization may die that if you give any man anything he has not painfully earned for himself you infallibly make him or his descendants your devoted enemies the end end of the riddle of empire recording by tim bulkley of bigbible.org end of letters of travel by rudyard kipling